I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, and I want to read the verses 7 through 11. Matthew chapter 7, in connection with Lord's Day 46. Matthew chapter 7, I'm going to read the first, or from 7 to 11. Listen to God's word with me. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks it finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Would you then also turn with me in the back of your Psalter hymnals to page 894, Lord's Day 46, question and answer 120 and 121. Page 894. And I remind you that this is your confession of faith as it is mine. And the question is asked, why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? Answer, to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer what should be basic to our prayer, a childlike reverence and trust that through Christ, God has become our Father and will much less refuse to give us what we ask in faith than will our parents refuse us the things of this life. Question, why the words, who is in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way and to expect from his almighty power everything needed for body and soul. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word as we find it in the creeds and confessions of the church. Once again, may God add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Salem with me this afternoon. There was a day when Christ's disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he does so by giving them a model prayer. And you know, as parents, we do the same thing. We begin to teach our little ones to pray by giving them a model or a form prayer. While they're very young, we teach our children to fold their hands, to bow their heads, to close their eyes and to say, Lord, bless this food and drink, or Lord, we thank thee for this food and drink. Or, now I lay me down to sleep. But when we have taught them the prayer well, meaning when they are able to recite it on their own without error or hesitation, then the objective of the parents has not yet been achieved. What I mean is the memorization of Bible verses, memorization of psalms and hymns, memorizing catechism, as well as the memorization of form prayers, is an exercise, and we are on earth in that consciousness. I'm sorry, forgive me.
something has gone terribly wrong here. Excuse me, just one minute before I sort this out. The memorization of these verses and psalms and hymns and even the form prayers is an exercise taught to our young children even before they're able to understand the content or the meaning of the words. I remember well the precious moments with my own tiny ones in my arms as I put them to bed for the night and I sang a prayer with them in the Dutch language. Ik ga slapen, ik ben moe, sluit mijn beiden oogjes toe. It was the prayer my parents had taught me. But my children were infants, only a few days old. I didn't expect them to understand, and even then, as they grew, I taught them the usual form prayers, knowing full well that for them, it was only a habit that they had been taught. They went through the motions, they knew the words, and they dutifully and reverently participated, but to them, they were only meaningless words. But then as they matured, I then taught my children to fill in the blanks, so to speak. That's our obligation as parents. As children mature, Christian parents instruct their children that there comes a time when that form prayer that we've taught them is no longer sufficient. And we teach them that there must be more to their prayers than the simple recitation and repetition of the words, Lord, bless this food and drink, or now I lay me down to sleep. And, and we do that initially by carefully teaching them, first of all, the content of the words they have already been repeating. We teach them what it means to ask God's blessing on the food and drink. And we teach them what it means to seek God's providential care over our sleeping minds and bodies. And we teach them that their prayers to God may never be simply ritual, habit, or ceremony. And although it is an extremely good tradition or custom, a form or a model prayer may never remain as a simple custom that is done before they go to eat or before they go to sleep. Parents, you need to listen to the prayers of your children, and you need to help them to offer prayers that are beneficial for them and pleasing to the Lord. They may not have asked you to help, as did the disciples, but it is no less your responsibility to teach them how to pray. The intent of Christ with his disciples was no different the first lesson the disciples were to learn was a simple, reverent, 
repetition of the words of what had come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. But they were then to go on from there to reflect upon the intent and the content of the words. And to that end, Christ gave them this model prayer. He gave to his disciples this prayer. And to to that same end, we have received it as well. And this afternoon, we begin to examine the content of the prayer given us by Christ. Beginning with the opening words, or if you will, beginning with the address of the prayer. And so I want to minister God's word to you this afternoon, using as my theme, Our Father who art in heaven. We want to learn that our Father wants us to approach him as children, like children. We will learn that our Father wants us to approach him as children of his family. And finally, we want to learn that our Father wants us to expect answer from him because he is our Father. And so our Father in heaven, he wants us to approach him as or like children, in a childlike We then learn that our Father wants us to approach him as children of his family. And then we want to learn that our Father wants us to expect answer from him because he is our Father. Congregation, the address of this prayer immediately alerts us to the need to consider the relationship between the creature and the creator. Capture this with me. When the minister of the word brings God's word within the assembly of the elect then he does not address them as my dear friends, but he identifies them as beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. I did a funeral service this past week, and there, or at a wedding, and in many other places, I addressed the audience as friends. But in a worship service, the relationship between God and his people is immediately identified and delineated. In the worship service, the audience is identified as God's people, not so at a funeral or a wedding. But at a worship service, the audience is identified as God's people, as distinct and different from the people of the world. And when the minister then raises up his arms and pronounces God's blessing upon the congregation, then God's people are again reminded that there's a further distinction, this time a distinction between the pulpit and the pew. And although the minister is also a member of that body known as the congregation of the Lord, he's not a member as other members. And that distinction, too, must always be remembered and maintained. People of God, I lament and I decry the fact that so many people address their minister by their first name. Even more tragic is it that many ministers want it so and encourage it. People of God, resist that practice and discourage your pastor from soliciting it. The minister is not better or higher than you, but he's different from you because of the cloak of office with which God has ordained him and with the authority that comes from God to that office through that ordination. Remember well and maintain that distinction. The same is true of the relationship between children and their parents. They are not on an equal plane. And that distinction and that authority ascribed to the parental office must always be maintained and exercised in the interaction between parents and children. Parents don't allow their, or at least they shouldn't, but parents don't allow their children to speak disrespectfully to them. Parents don't allow their children to call them by their first names, do they? And so too in the prayer given us by the Lord, God's children address their Father in heaven. 
and we need to tenaciously, with bulldog teeth, maintain that distinction between God the creator and man the created being. They are not on equal planes. And then it strikes us that in this address we do not hear of a long list of names of God. Rather, we simply hear our Father, Father, our Father who art in heaven. And I want to reflect on that with you in this context for just a moment. You see, in teaching us to address God as Father, it was certainly not our Lord's intent that we could not call him by any other name given us in Scripture. No, the intent is here. Our Lord wants, first of all, to instill in us a consciousness of our relationship to God as Father. And that is also the thought that our confession would have us capture in the first question and answer. The question reads, why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? And then the answer is, to awaken in us, at the very beginning of our prayer, that childlike reverence and trust toward God should be the ground of our prayer, namely, that God has become our Father through Jesus Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of him in true faith than our parents would refuse us earthly things. Congregation, the emphasis here needs to fall, first of all, on our relationship to God. And here we confess that God has become our Father through Jesus Christ. We need to understand this well at the beginning of our prayer. There is so much loose thinking in our modern liberal world, and here we are to take careful note of a biblical distinction with regards to the fatherhood of God. We need to understand the distinction between God as the father of creation and God the father of redemption. You see, the Bible teaches us that God is the father of all of creation. All men are created in the image of God. Scripture clearly teaches that in him all men move and have their being. Jesus taught that God cares for and provides for the needs of all men and women. God makes the sun to rise and shine on the good and on the evil. And God sends the rain to fall on the evil and the just. The sun warms the backs of the evil and the just. The seasons of the year, the sunshine, the rain, the fruit of the fields, the years of our life and all the rest, and, and, and fully and completely under the providence and the government of God for the welfare of all men. God cares for, God provides for, God sustains all men, even though all men have forfeited the right to his goodness. And so when we speak of God as Father, we are reminded here that all men are his children by virtue of their creation. God is a saving father only to the redeemed by virtue of their recreation. You remember the story. Man through sin has forfeited his privilege of sonship. And in order to have a saving relationship with God, that relationship must be restored by grace. After the fall, the Bible teaches of a restoration, a new creation, or if you will, a recreation, a new relationship between creator and creature. And, and that new relationship is created through the redemptive work of Christ. In other words, although all men and women are sons and daughters through creation, only some become sons and daughters of God through recreation. That means then that out of all of the fallen humanity, God has adopted only some and he has made them his own children in grace. 
Once again, we're confronted with the doctrine of the two kingdoms, that of light and that of darkness. All of God's creation fell into darkness after the fall in paradise. But only some have been rescued and have been redeemed. Only some have been rescued from darkness and translated into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness, as Paul in Colossians chapter 1. All of God's creation fell into darkness, but only some have been rescued and have been redeemed. And only those can come to him as father. People of God, it has been my great privilege to explain these particular doctrines to the children of God's people during the courses of my ministry in the catechism classes. And I have taught them. I have taught them of their blessed privileged position as children of the Father through recreation. And now I am also able to tell you that you too have been granted a particular relationship with God. You have been granted a particular blessing and relationship with Him. Understand this well and then and then and then fall on your knees in thanksgiving. You see, through, through sin, man forfeited his rights and his position as a child of God. And his nature has become corrupt. As a result of sin, man, all men and women, you and I, man is no longer an obedient child of God, but is by nature, what comes to him naturally, he's inclined to hate God and his neighbor. And consequently, in order to have God as father, men and women must first of all experience what is called to be converted or being born again. And in that miracle of miracles, God does two things. First of all, by adoption, he restores men and women to the position of true sons and daughters of God. And secondly, he gives them a new nature, wherein they are enabled to love God and neighbor as is required of them. And in that new nature, and, 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 that, new nature, and that new nature has not been given to all men and to all women, but only to some. And now the greatest miracle of all is that that gift is yours. And therefore you have the blessed privilege to come to him as father, my father, our father. And it is now in that context that we are to understand the confession here with regards to addressing God as father. Follow with me for a moment as we capture this amazing truth taught us here by our Lord himself. Allow me, if you will, an illustration. You know, or might know, from personal experience how difficult it is to obtain uh, access to someone extremely important. Try, imagine trying to get an appointment with the Premier Doug Ford, or worse yet, with the Prime Minister of this country. It's almost impossible. It's almost impossible to get past all of the secretaries and the staff. Think with me now. God is the almighty, omnipotent, omnipresent creator and ruler of this entire universe. Remember now that because of sin, we have forfeited all rights to any kind of an audience with him. Because we have rebelled against him, we have lost the right to call him father. And now the glory of the gospel taught us here in these few words of Christ at the very opening of this model prayer is that you and I, despite our sin, you and I, despite our sin, through the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ, we have immediately access to his throne of grace. Imagine that with me. 
Every time we pray and say, Our Father, we are reminded that the almighty creator of heaven and earth is ready to hear and answer us through our mediator, Jesus Christ. Not the Pope, not the priest, not the Virgin Mary, nor any of the other so-called saints. No, through Jesus Christ, this almighty God who is our creator has become also our recreator. And he has in fact become our father and through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So we come to God in prayer and that now has implication for us. You see, to know God as father reminds us that if we who are evil yet know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father not give good things to those who ask it of Him? In other words, in other words, because He is our Father, we can expect Him to give us every good thing, and He has done so. He has given us grace upon grace upon grace, up to and including that gift of so great a salvation. But there's more here. We notice that Christ commands us that we address him as our Father. And we notice that we are not to pray to him as my Father, but our Father. And again, that's not to say that it is never appropriate to pray to my Father. But here Christ wants to teach us of communal prayer. Here in this prayer, Christ teaches us to put away from our minds any national, racial, family, or personal exclusiveness. We are reminded that our Father is not our personal God. In commanding that we address God as our Father, Jesus wants to instruct us that we are not the only children of God. This part of the prayer immediately at the very outset reminds us of our obligation towards all of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And when we pray for our daily bread, we pray also for the well-being of our brothers and sisters. Jesus insists of us that we understand that as Christians, it is not only my needs, not only my sins, not only my fears, not only my sorrows that I bring before him, but it is our sin, our need, our fears, our sorrows that we bring before the Lord's throne of grace. Christ here wants us to know of the spiritual union that we have with each other as brothers and sisters, people of God. Our culture, our present culture, has for so long taught us that I am the most important person in the world that now most people think it's all about me. It's all about them. And tragically, many Christians have fallen into that same trap. Listen with me to how beautifully the hymn writer has captured the truth of the Christian being not first of all in a personal relationship, but a covenant communal and corporate body of believers. We sang it together. We hear it in the words that we sang. Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers. Our fears, our hopes, our aims are one. Our comforts and our cares. We share our mutual woes. Our mutual burdens bear. And often for each other flows a sympathizing tear. People of God, although each of us must come to know the Lord God, Jesus Christ, personally, and although no one can come to God on the coattails of another, once having, been, having come to know him, 
Christians do not weep alone, nor do they rejoice alone. We are reminded of our spiritual union with one another. Christians are taught to pray, Our Father, for all who are in Jesus Christ are our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Our Lord reminds us of the communion of the saints. We are not divided, all one body, we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. The Lord reminds us that the oneness we express together in our prayers must also come to concrete expression by showing our unity, our love, and our devotion for one another, not only in lip service and prayer, but also in the way in which we live and interact with one another. People of God, Christ instructs us to pray to God as our Father. And in those two little words, God draws himself so very near to us. He takes us into his bosom. He takes us into his bosom, so to speak. And he fills us with childlike love and confidence so that we do not run away in fear when confronted with his awesomeness and his holiness, but rather that we might have the boldness to remain in his presence and to pour out our hearts before him. However, this does not mean that God has now become our equal and that therefore we can now address him as we would a friend or a neighbor. No. God does not grant us that kind of familiarity. I tried to explain that to you earlier. I once was in the presence of a man offering a public prayer with a vain repetition of, gee, Lord, I just want to say, and gee, Lord, I just want you to know, Lord, oh, gee, Lord. Obviously, such a person had understood nothing of the sovereign majesty of our Father who art in heaven. God is not our buddy, and we need to remember that, especially when we go to him in prayer. But there's still more here. When Jesus was on to teach us and his disciples that we were to address God as our Father who art in heaven, then we need to understand that these words are also very significant. You see, when we take upon our lips the words, Our Father, it teaches us of God's grace and goodness towards us. It teaches us of the nearness and the dearness of his relationship to us, our Father. And when we now add the words, Who art in heaven, then those words would have us know that God is far above us. Oh, not in distance, but in majesty and in glory. The words, Our Father, inspire confidence and love. And then the words which are in heaven, they should fill us with humility and awe and reverence. Capture the wisdom of our blessed Lord here in teaching us these words. When using only the words, Our Father, there remains a danger that we take upon ourselves an unholy familiarity with God. And if we use only the words who are in heaven, then the danger exists that we are filled with an unhealthy fear. But now in giving us and teaching us to use both, Christ awakens in us a childlike fear and reverence. In this way, we are taught a healthy equilibrium, a balance. In the opening few words of our prayer, the mercy and the might of God are set before us. We see his unfathomable love as Father and his immeasurable, incomprehensible holiness as God in heaven. Both elements must be maintained when we go to him in prayer. Christ says when you go to him in prayer, say, Our Father who art in heaven. And he thereby teaches us that when we pray, we are to lift our hearts away from the things of this earth 
The confession says that we may have no earthly thought of the heavenly majesty of God. So when we pray our Father who art in heaven, we are to remember that God is very highly exalted. God is highly exalted above us and above all of creation. He is infinite in wisdom and power. He is glorious in the beauty of holiness. And we may not think earthly of him, nor may we pare him down from his heavenly splendor. In that holiness now, in spite of awe and reverence, I'm sorry, in that spirit of awe and reverence, knowing that he is in heaven and that we are on earth, in that consciousness of his infinite power, his, in being aware of his majesty, his holiness, his wisdom, in that spirit, we will know how we are to pray to him in the assurance that he knows our needs, will grant us the desire of our hearts, while at the same time, we will refrain from praying thoughtlessly or flippantly. People of God, having properly explained and understood all of this, we now have the proper framework to even better understand the previous question and answer. Last Lord's Day, we were asked the question, why pray? Why should we pray? What does it benefit us? And three answers were there given us. Firstly, we are to pray because God wants it. Simple as that. Second, we are to pray because God's gift can be had only by way of prayer. And then finally, prayer is a required response of our love and gratitude to God. Think with me now. God commands us to pray because God wants to grant us his gifts. And those gifts can be had only by way of prayer. And then having received those excellent gifts, it is again prayer that is our chief expression of thankfulness to him for giving us those gifts. But now we need to understand which gift it is that the confession is talking about. You see, we have heard earlier that all men and all women receive gifts from God. All men and women owe their very lives to him as their creator. But, 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 but here, Christ teaches of, of a particular people who have received particular gifts. Here we learn of people who, because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, have become sons and daughters of God in a particular way. Here we learn of a people who have learned to say, Abba, Father. And as consequence, they have received from God not only all of the gifts common to all men and women in creation, they have received more. They've received infinitely more. They have received righteousness, justification, sanctification, ultimately glorification. Those now are the gifts not granted to all men and women. No, they're granted only to God's particular people. Why does Christ teach us to pray saying our Father? Because God in Jesus Christ has become our Father in a particular way. When Christ lays the words our Father on our lips, he has taught us that not with silver nor with gold, but with his precious blood, he has obtained for you something not granted to all men and women. Christ in grace and in mercy and love Love has laid down his life in order to remove the obstacle of sin that hindered you from becoming a child of God in that particular way. Peace between you and God <coughs> has been restored now and forever. What does that mean? Oh, you know the story. 
It's the glorious gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ. Our sin, yours and mine, our sin since the dawn of creation removed from us, placed on Jesus Christ in our place. And he then with our sin and because of our sin was nailed on that tree. He then was buried with our sin. He then rose from the grave to make us alive in him. He then ascended into heaven where he then continues to intercede on our behalf in order that our faith might never fail us. His spirit now makes us new creatures and his spirit renews us day by day enabling us to live for him. Why then should we begin our prayers with the words, Our Father, because God in Christ has become our Father in a way that we can hardly explain, let alone understand. Who now are those people who call him Father? It is those who have received the gift of faith. They have become new creations, new creatures, Only those can stand before God in prayer as if they had never sinned or never even been sinful. They are the redeemed children of God, redeemed by the blood of Christ and renewed by the Spirit of Christ. Having understood that, then it hardly seems necessary for the catechism to explain that prayer is the chief part of thankfulness for the Christian. When a man or a woman, having previously only known God as creator, now in grace comes to know him as redeemer. Once having come to know that God has rescued him from darkness and has given him to Jesus where he is now safe and secure from all alarm, now and forever, it will be impossible. Hear me well. It will be impossible that such a redeemed child of the Lord will not cry out in thanksgiving for that gift of so great a salvation. Oh, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Peter God, some people when searching for a job complain, it doesn't matter what you know, it's only important who you know. And that's certainly true in this context. The all-inclusive, the all-encompassing question is, Do you, personally, do you know the Lord? If you, yes. If your answer is in the affirmative, if you know that you know him, then you also know the Father. Not only do you know him, he has in fact become your Father, your Father in heaven. May he be so for each of us.